Lord bless you. I trust you've had a lovely <coughs> holiday. Does this set anywhere it needs to set? Or may I set this back a bit? Is this here for some reason? We're going to look tonight to the sixth of Daniel, and this is the threshold for part two of the book. And before we even begin to read, I want to make note of some things. We have, for example, discussed already, and this will be important this evening, discussed the distinction between Israel in this book and the church, and we indicated, C-H-U-R-C-H, okay. We indicated that Israel was seen in, in the figure of the threefold. For example, we talked about Noah and his three sons, uh, being a picture of Israel in that there are three segments of redeemed Israel. Following with that, we noted the multiple figure of the treasure uh, hid in the field. And then, of course, with regard to Daniel, the three Hebrews, Daniel's uh, three friends. Yeah, if I lose you somewhere with this, I'm just summarizing. Uh, please cause me to rehearse it. And then we indicated that in terms of the church, in that same parallel, we have Enoch, because the church is always seen in the figure of one. The church is a unity. Uh, whereas Israel is seen in multiple figures, the church is always in that singular unit. Uh, the, with regard to the parables of Matthew 13, from which we get the treasure, you'll remember, the church is spoken to in the pearl. And then, of course, with regard to the book of Daniel, as we had Israel seen in the three Hebrews, uh, we have Daniel in the lion's den. How do you spell Daniel? I-E-L. Right. The three Hebrews were in the fiery furnace because Israel is going to experience the tribulation of God. God said, when you pass through the fire, it will not kindle upon you. Isaiah 43, and Israel, of course, is going to experience, as did those three uh, Hebrews, the loosing of their bonds as a result of that trial and the tribulation that they're going to go through. Whereas the church of the Lord Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 5, is experiencing uh, the <coughs> roaring lion as he goes about seeking whom he may devour. I might add this right now, that uh, there are interesting uh, amplifications of Daniel's experience in the lion's den spoken of in Peter's epistle, since it is particularly an epistle that addresses the issue of suffering of the saints in this present day. Every chapter addresses itself to the issue of our suffering, and as Christ suffered, we suffer also. And uh, the Satan is the one who's, of course, promoting that suffering, and so Daniel in the lion's den, beautiful picture of the church, and God's preservation of that church. Now, we're anyway, I say on the second part of this book, because Daniel is an old man now, you understand. He's about 80. Those pictures that you see of that young fellow standing in the front of the lion uh, in that den, uh, they don't follow. Uh, he's been now through the whole 70 years captivity with the children of Israel. You recall he was carried away in the first Babylonian carrying away. And he's been through the whole reign of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, and now we come to the entrance of Darius, uh, the Medes and the Persians on the scene. So Daniel is well up there. He was in his teens when he was carried away at the outset. Uh, if uh, I, I suppose most of us could identify with this if we ever have to be put into a lion's den. We hope that we're at least 80 years old for two reasons. Number one, if the Lord doesn't choose to deliver us, we haven't lost much. And uh, number two, by that time, maybe we'll have obtained enough experience to be able to face those lions with the same attitude as did Daniel. Probably wouldn't be good to eat either. 
Probably. <laughs> Good thought, brother. Good thought. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now another thing that I think is important to us to emphasize is that there are in these two governments under which Daniel is serving, uh, first of all, the necessity of God authenticating his man. That's one of the prime things the Lord is out to do here. Let's have a look at Daniel 5. I'm sorry, 6. God is about to authenticate His man. You remember that Jesus said, If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. And it's always been the purpose of God, when His people had need of it, that He put the right individual into the places of authority in government. That to secure His people. The Lord's done that marvelously in this country. That's not to say that everybody that has always served His purpose has been uh, a particularly a believer or a born-again believer, if you would, to make it more specific, but that it's been somebody who's honored him and who at least had regard to the integrity of the Word of God and would honor the righteous principles which are sure to be found in the Scripture. So God always sets his man in the place of responsibility when it's necessary. If I may just interject this as a parenthesis, it's noteworthy that in those times of Israel's particular need in the circumstances in the world that God always had in governments, uh, uh, in places of authority in governments, and those governments which were uh, in some way, uh, how shall I say, particularly related to Israel and her, like England, uh, the United States, always somebody that was sympathetic with their place in the world. It was interesting that at the peak of Israel's trial uh, in the 70s, there was a fellow in government in the United States who had, and he, it would have been unavoidable for him to have been sympathetic uh, with Israel. Uh, he had, God had placed a man there who could feel with Israel while he felt with our needs at the same time. What was his name? Kissinger. Kissinger. And you can see the th same thing in Israel's experience with regard to England. Uh, Lord Beaconsforth. Uh, what's his, uh, uh, lost his real name now. That's his... Uh, official name. I've lost his real name now. I'm sorry, I can't draw it back. In any case, uh, God had a man in Beaconsforth. I'm going to try to get that back about halfway through this class. It's going to come to me and I'm going to blurt it out. <laughs> uh, here was a man who cared about the people of Israel. It's just hanging back there. It's hard to talk when you're trying to draw that back. Uh, no. Uh, Disraeli. Benjamin Disraeli. Thank you. Appreciate that. That saved us later on. <laughs> Uh, here was a man who really cared about the needs of the people of Israel. Well, at the same time, he was sympathetic with the British government. So God always puts a man in a place of responsibility that he can, through whom he can secure that people when he's ready to do so. And that's what he's done with these Hebrews when he's exalted them to power to see to it that the people of God are preserved. The further classic example in the Scripture is, of course, a fellow named Mordecai. And Mordecai, you recall, was hated by Haman, who was coming up second under the king, and so the whole issue of the book of Esther is to get Mordecai, I'm sorry, Haman out and Mordecai in. And he does that through a little girl named Esther, you'll remember. So the Lord is always preparing that security for his people as it's necessary. So he's going to honor his man in this case. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes who should be over the whole kingdom. We'll come back to that momentarily. And over these three presidents of whom Daniel was first that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. 
Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. You recall that Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, wife remembered him as that one in whom was the spirit of the what? Holy gods. Yes, that's how they understood that, the spirit of the holy gods. There are places in the scripture where the term gods is a translation of the term demon. But that's how they saw them. They just saw the spirit world working, and they saw a holy spirit in Daniel as opposed to the unholy spirits that they were accustomed to dealing with. Now, I can't take time to read the whole passage, and hopefully, of course, you're doing that anyhow. But you remember that as Daniel came into this place of prominence, jealousy set in with some of his colleagues. And because of that jealousy, they want to see Daniel put down, but they recognize that they're not going to be able to do it except they find some fault with him with regard to his God. Look at verse 5. Then said these men, We will not find any occasion against Daniel because he was a faithful man, faithful to the Lord, but faithful to the king, except we find it against him concerning his God. So they're going to have to find some conflict between the government and Daniel's God. So since they couldn't find one, they arranged one. Then these presidents and princes assembled themselves together to the king and said, Thus unto King Darius live forever. All the presidents and kings uh, of the kingdom, the governors, this wasn't true, of course, because Daniel wasn't included in the conference, mm -hmm. and the princes, the counselors, the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days except of thee, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Well, of course, that flattered Darius. Sounded like a good idea to him. And haste of, he that hasteth with his uh, feet sinneth, Solomon said in Proverbs. And of course, Darius did it. Verse 9, wherefore King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Well, now Daniel knew about this, but it didn't particularly concern him. Daniel didn't go down in the marketplace and fall on his knees and start praying. That would have been flouting his own self-righteousness. But he just continued to do what he normally did. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, his windows being opened in a chamber toward Jerusalem, knelt down upon his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God as he did previously. All right, now, before we go any farther with that, remember that we're looking at two different rulerships here. First of all, the rulership of Babylon, and the rulership of Babylon is associated with bondage. That's why... Uh, Israel was carried away, you recall, by Babylon to bring them into a bondage whereby God might purify from them idolatry. He said when he was through with them in Babylon, they would cast their uh, idols to the moles and to the bats. And Israel, from the time that they returned from the Babylonian captivity to this present day, has never again been a polytheistic nation, an idolatrous nation. Then we come to Persia. Now, Persia is the na uh, nation of redemption. Now let me stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I think that's about running out. You'll recall that in the image of gold, which Nebuchadnezzar, I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, multi-metal image which Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, he set up the image of gold a little later on. It was first of all Babylon, the head of gold, and then Persia, the arms and breasts of silver, and then the loins of brass, and then the legs of iron, and then the feet part of iron, part of clay. We noted to you that the... Uh, Golden Kingdom Babylon, the Persian Kingdom uh, in the silver, the brass was Greece, the iron legs of iron Rome and its divided kingdom between east and west, and finally the feet, part of iron and part of clay, and the ten toes addressing the kingdoms of the last day. 
which parenthetically is the great transition in this book beginning with chapter 7. We'll begin to see the end time prophecies as they're given to Daniel. What we've been looking at right now is the historical revelation of the end time, but as it related to the people of Israel. Now we're going to look at it in the latter part of the book as it's given to the people of God regarding their experience in the last day. So Babylon is the nation of bondage, and Persia is the nation of redemption. Uh, silver in the Word of God is the metal of redemption. Thirty pieces of silver, you recall, cast in for the Lord Jesus. Silver was Half shekel of silver was the redemption money that was given for the children of Israel as they were redeemed their sons before the Lord. Silver is always addressing redemption. Persia is that redemptive nation because they were the people who sent Israel back to the land, you'll recall. Babylon carried them away, uh, established them in their own kingdoms, even scattered some of them to other nations, but always it was their policy to take the people out of the kingdom that, to which they were native and put them someplace else. That was to keep down rebellion to keep down the nationalistic attitudes that were arise. Now Persia was just the opposite of that, and not just Israel did they do that, by the way. They did that with all nations that they conquered. And so they began to send Israel back to the land. And for that reason, then, they are viewed as a redemptive nation. Now I want to make an application off of that. Because Babylon is viewed here as the nation of bondage, what you see in uh, uh, the uh, figurative portions like the three Hebrews address that bondage. This figure of the fiery furnace points to Israel in the time of the tribulation. When Israel in the midst of that horrible bondage, that last holocaust that God has prepared for them, are going to experience the purifying that's necessary to restore them to himself. Come with me please from Daniel to the prophet Hosea, just one block to the right. <clears throat> The prophet Hosea. Hosea is uniquely that prophetic scripture which points to Israel as the wife of Jehovah, who because of her unfaithfulness and adultery are put away, and which is going to be restored. Chapter 2, Hosea, verse 2. Contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her harlotry out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that when she was born. Verse 4, And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother hath played the harlot. Verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. Now here's the judgment of Israel that God is about to put upon her. Look at verse 14 now. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly unto her, and I will give her her vineyards there and the valley of Achor for the door of hope. Now somebody tell me what Achor was. Don't remember? Trouble. Trouble. The place where Achan died. Yes, and it was called Achor because of Achan's troubling of the people of Israel. So God says, I'm going to give them the valley of Achor for a door of hope. When Isaiah addresses this in the time of the restoration in the last days, he said, I'm going to give them the valley of Achor as a place to lie down in. So they've gone from trial to rest in this valley of Achor. But that's still anticipated by Israel. So here he's prophesying the troubling that the nation of Israel is going to go through in the time of her bondage. Now come over with me, please 
to chapter uh, 2, and let me start with the context in verse, uh, yes, indeed, where? 21, how about that? And it shall come to pass in that day that I will hear, saith the Lord, and I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. The earth shall hear the grain and the wine and the oil, bread, wine, oil, very important uh, combination. And they shall hear Jezreel. Jezreel is the valley of Jezreel, one of the places, you recall, the nations are going to be gathered in the last day for the judgment of God. It's tied to the plain of Estralon. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. Now that's the sowing of Israel in the earth when he scatters her among the nations. And then he says, I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say unto them who were not my people, Thou art the people of, or thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Now that's the calling of the Gentiles. This passage is quoted by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews to emphasize this remnant that God is going to bring in out of the Gentiles when he puts Israel away. Blindness in part. Come with me to uh, the epistle. I got more I want to talk about there, but I want to come with to Romans 11, please. This Romans, Romans 11. Verse 7. There's a lot here that ought to be talked about. Well, I'll read verse 2. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew, in the sense of foreloving. Know ye not what the Scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets, dug down thine altars. I am alone, left alone, and they seek my life. I'm the only one left. Lord, kill me. What saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Now the remnant's being called, but the balance of Israel is put away. Verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which she seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, that's a remnant, and the rest were blinded. Come over with me further in this same chapter. There's, again, a lot of good parts, but verse 25. He's talking in the context prior to this to Israel as the natural olive branch being cut off and we the Gentiles, the wild olive branch, being grafted into the true root. But God is going to graft them in again as well. Verse 24 notes that. For I, verse 25, would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. After this, then, so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins." So as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. Now, I read all that to emphasize that while Israel goes through this time of trial and troubling, it is the purpose of God to restore that people to himself. And no confusion should be made as you study the Old Testament or the New Testament scriptures between God's purposes for Israel as a nation and God's purposes for the church. And we'll talk more about that momentarily. So in the three Hebrew children and their suffering in the fiery furnace, come back to Hosea with me. We have that view of Israel in that time of trial. Now I'm trying to contrast this with Daniel in the lion's den. 
They're under the Babylonian kingdom, pointing to that bondage, that bondage of sin that they're in. Now let's look at chapter 3 of Hosea. And this is a short chapter and most marvelous as it relates to God's love for the people of Israel, love for His wife that He's had to put away, and the length to which He goes to call her to Himself. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now let me pause here and remind all of you, as you're familiar with Hosea, you'll recall that God commanded this prophet to go marry an adulterous woman. Now, obviously that seemed a strange thing to Hosea at the outset, but he said, I want you to love this woman, Hosea, with the same love that I have for the people of Israel. And she's going to be unfaithful to you. And as she is unfaithful to you, you're going to feel the hurt and the pain that I feel for the children of Israel as they've become unfaithful to me. And she was that, and as you recall the first chapter, she bore, first of all, a child to Hosea, then she bears a second child, the source of which is questionable, and the third child is definitely not Hosea's. And all of this becoming a parable of how the children of Israel are treating the Lord. Hosea becomes probably one of the most profound object lessons before the people of Israel of all of Holy Writ. And the hurt that this man went through because of that. Now when we come to chapter 3, Hosea has left, uh, I'm sorry, Gomer, his wife, has left Hosea. And he's going out to find her again to restore her to himself. And where does he find her? In a slave market. So it becomes necessary for Hosea to go down to the slave market after all of the hurt he's already experienced and repurchase this wife to himself in a public place and restore her, which is precisely what Jesus Christ did, not only for Israel, but also for us. Found us in the slave market, went down in the public place of that slave market, and bought that adulterous person to himself to restore her forever. There's no greater love pronounced in all of Scripture, I think, than that. Verse 1, chapter 3 again. And then said the Lord unto me, Go, yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for myself for fifteen pieces of silver, and for an omer of barley, and for a half omer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days, and thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man, and so will I also be for thee. This not playing the harlot points to the fact that in the midst of Israel's trial, she ceases to be idolatrous. The love of God is still toward her, but there is at this point not a suggestion of her love toward him. And it ought to be emphasized to this, at this point, though it has nothing to do with the whole prophetic scream we're addressing, that God's love for us is not fickle and it is not predicated on our love for him. It is tremendously important that we remember that God loves his people in spite of their feelings toward him. And love begets love. The only way that I can ever love God is that I first of all recognize the degree of God's love toward me. And nowhere in the whole of the New Testament record does God ever call on me to love Him. I'm going to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Will you forgive that repetition is the price of knowledge? You'll notice how wonderfully the relationship between husband and wife parallels the relationship between God and Israel and Christ and the church and how beautifully that's pronounced in the Song of Solomon. I remember a number of years ago, and the preacher isn't here anymore, so don't try to figure out who he was. But there were a bunch of people, a bunch of ladies wanted to get together for a Bible study, and they went to their preacher and asked if they could have a Bible study, and he laughed and said, well, I guess we could study the humor of the Old Testament. 
And then he laughed again and said, or maybe we could study the Song of Solomon. That's a good dirty book, quote unquote. I thought my house staggering the ignorance of the Word of God on the part of some of those who are responsible to teach it. You know, you want to tell them, go be a truck driver. <laughs> go do something else. But whatever you do, don't be responsible to preach the Word of God to people when you don't even believe it yourself. The Song of Solomon addresses that marvelous courtship that went on between God the Father and Israel his wife, and now between Christ and the church, and points to the fact that love begets love. And so because of that marvelous parable that God sets down, that marvelous allegory of husband-wife relationship, I speak a great mystery, Paul said, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It is the responsibility, men, for you to love your wife. It is your responsibility, women, for you to reverence your husband. But at no point in the whole of Holy Writ is a woman ever called upon to love her husband. Hello? It's truth. And write the book. Take it up with the Lord. One time it's so translated in Titus. Paul says, wives, love your husbands. But it's the Greek word phileo, and it means to have a strong affection for and a reverence for. But never is a woman ever told to have that agape kind of love that Christ has for us. But we, on the other hand, men, are commanded, Ephesians chapter 5, to love our husbands with that same kind of love that Christ had for the church when He loved it and gave Himself up for it. Now why is that? Because what I am to my wife is what Christ is to me. And what I will be to my wife is what Christ will be to me. He is my Savior as I'm the Savior of my wife. And so if I want my wife to love me, it's going to be imperative that I love my wife. Because love begets love. And so we have in Romans chapter 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. So if you want your life, wife to love you, brethren, you're going to have to love her. Even as God has revealed His love to us, and then we can respond to love in Him, because love begets love. Do you follow that? That's just a parenthesis. I throw that out for free. Where was I when I got on that now? God's restoration of Israel. Yes. So it isn't necessary at all that Israel recognize even right now it is not necessary that Israel the nation recognize the degree of God's great love for them. He loves them anyhow. He's doing what is necessary regardless of how they understand Him. Regardless of how they respond to Him, He's doing what is necessary to restore what He loves. And in that day, finally, when they realize the magnitude of that love, they'll mourn because of Him. Another subject. We won't get into that right now. So verse 4. And again, I, did, I, did I lose you all together with what I was trying to say in verse 3? Maybe I'll emphasize that again. Uh, Thou shalt abide for many days and not play the harlot. So here Israel is no longer idolatrous because of the trial in Babylon, but still not restored to the Lord. Verse 4, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without a teraphim. And afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, David their king, and shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. Now that's the anticipation of the restoration of that people in the last days when they shall look on Him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn because of Him. Now, what's all that got to do then with Daniel's situation? We'll come back over to chapter 6 then. 
while Israel is viewed in the place of bondage, Daniel is viewed in this case, that is in the three Hebrew children in the place of bondage, Daniel is viewed I-E-L? Yeah, it has to be. In a redemptive kingdom in that place of persecution. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the uh, fiery furnace is any more deadly than a lion's den. Dead is dead, whether it comes by fire or by lions. But the emphasis is that during this period, in the redemptive period, we are looking at the period of the grace of God in the church, whereas in this case, we're looking at the time of trial and tribulation. So, as God has poured out the Holy Spirit upon us during this time, and this is what the Apostle Paul calls the day of salvation, we're looking then at the persecution that the people of God experience in this time as a result of the antagonism of the world and the jealousies of the world. Now I want you to come with me, please, <coughs> to Ephesians, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. Thank you very much. Stop. 74 is the one I'm after. All right. <laughs> Chapter 3. This marvelous work of redemption that God is doing for the Gentiles was hidden in Old Testament time. You can't search through the Old Testament and find any point where God tells us that He's going to redeem Gentiles in mass. Now, it was hidden there, and we can thank you, Brother Cup, go water, name of the Lord, so don't lose reward. <laughs> It's hidden there, and we can see it because we have hindsight. But without that hindsight, it would never show up at all. There are interesting little suggestions. For example, in Genesis 49, Joseph's branch would go over the wall. Well, that was, that was pointing to the fact that the fruit of Israel would come out into the Gentile area and that the Gentile would benefit from that fruit. But without our hindsight, we'd never catch what the Lord was intending to say by that. But now... God having given us revelation in the New Testament, we begin to look back at the Old Testament. We say, ah, yes, the Lord through all of that was saying that He was going to include the Gentiles. What was pointed to in that little book of Ruth? Uh -huh. When Ruth is bought, brought back uh, by her mother-in-law, Naomi, from the land of the Moabites, but that God was going to bring in the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. But all they saw that was just a very small remnant of the Gentiles, and it would never be any different. That's why the Apostle Peter, you recall, had such a problem when he was about to go preach the gospel to the house of Cornelius, it was necessary for God to give to the Apostle Peter that vision of the sheep let down with all manner of unclean beasts and creeping things in it, uh, or else Peter would have never recognized that what God has cleansed, even a bunch of unclean beasts and creeping things, i.e. Gentiles, hello, yeah. us, Peter would have never gone to them and preached to them. And even after he did, when he came back and told the brethren in Jerusalem, they climbed all over him because he'd gone into the house of Gentiles and preached the gospel. He said, let me tell you what happened there, brethren. While I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. And their conclusion was, well, what is this then? God hath granted repentance unto the Gentiles. So all of that was very hidden in the Old Testament. And it was a shock to the Jews to think that Gentiles were going to be brought in. They couldn't see any reason for them to at all. They deserved quite the opposite, and they're really right about that. Hmm? Chapter 3. Did I say that? Mm -hmm. Ephesians. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, 
if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me towards you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, this suggestion then of Daniel in our case today certainly would not have been seen at all or understood by them. But now we can look back on it and see what God is saying by this new king that's giving redemption to his people in contrast to that one that brought them under bondage. So Daniel, the suffering time, addressing the church and its experience now. Come with me to Peter, please. 1 Peter. Starting with chapter 1 and verse 5. You who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, in this ye greatly rejoice that now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold trials, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Come over with me, please, to verse uh, 21 of chapter 1. Who by him do believe in God, who raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing that ye are pur you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Come over with me, please, to chapter 3. I'm going to skip some of this. Chapter 3. Wrong verse. Ah, yes, chapter 2. I'm so sorry. Chapter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the perverse. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Would you say that Daniel fit in that uh, uh, passage? Mm -hmm. For which glory, what glory is it if when ye are buffeted for your faults, uh, you take it patiently? But if when ye, uh, when ye do well, you suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. One of the things we want to note about Daniel as we read it in just a moment is that he never opened his mouth in complaint. Did you ever take note of that? Did you ever consider that with Isaac? we just mention him right now. He's on his way up the hill with Abraham, and Abraham's got the fire and the wood, and Isaac says to Abraham, Lord, our Father, here is the wood, and here's the fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God shall provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And they got to the top of the hill, and Isaac suddenly realizes he's the lamb. But you never get one complaint from Isaac. And then, of course, God showed him the ram caught in the thicket. So the ram was a substitute for the substitute until the real substitute should come. Chapter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, 
To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Now I skip the passage that's germane to where we're going, so back up please to chapter 5 and verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren which are in the world. All right, let's come back to Daniel 6. Y'all still there? Yeah. <coughs> let's pick it up from verse 16, if we might. Daniel 16. How are we doing? Then the king commanded that they brought Daniel. Now you understand that Daniel, uh, or the king rather, has made an attempt right up to the time of the evening when he was to be put into this lion's den to deliver Daniel since it was not in the heart of the king to do this thing. But because of his impetuousness, he got himself into this fix. And Daniel as well. Verse 16 then. The king commanded that they brought Daniel to cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. And then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. I think that's an interesting phrase, a lamentable voice. As if to say, uh, with great sorrow are you still in there, Daniel. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? And I love Daniel's answer. You catch this? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Do you catch that? Who is in the place of death? And so he's telling the king who's on the outside, O king, live forever. Now I want, to find, I want you to note this parallel. Daniel is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus here uh, in that he was falsely accused and put into that place of death and came out into the place of life only to take a position higher than that one he possessed before he went into that place of death. But as he, as we've already read in Peter's epistle, suffered for us, we ought also, Peter says, to arm ourselves with a like mind, with the same mind. We need to expect that this is the reaction that the world is going to bring against us. I want to digress from teaching to preaching here just momentarily. I feel like that there is a tendency on our part to want to become acceptable and comfortable in the economy of this world. And we need to recognize that when all men we speak well of us, that we've got a problem with the Lord. And that uh, those who live godly in Christ Jesus, Peter said, will suffer persecution. We w I don't mean by that that we should make a special effort to become the kind of peculiar people that seem to be very peculiar. Uh, the term which Peter uses means a people of his own, uniquely belonging to him. Some people just go out of their way to be peculiar. Uh, Paul says we are to, to provoke one another unto love. Some of us just go out of our way to provoke. I'm not suggesting that we ought to be that kind of people. Like, uh, uh, as I uh, emphasized a moment ago, Daniel did not go down into the middle of the marketplace and drop on his knees, start to pray, 
to emphasize his own self-righteousness. There's a sense in which we create our own persecution. Am I making any sense? Yeah. There's a sense in which we can uh, antagonize people deliberately just by our pseudo-holiness. We're not pointing to that kind of thing, but we need to remember that there is an antagonism in the world against the child of God due to the fact that you don't belong to the spirit of this age. And the spirit of this age is going to have an antagonistic attitude uh, towards you in any circumstance you encounter him. Again, may I say, did you ever go into a store, uh, deal with a clerk, uh, stop in a gas station to purchase gas, and the guy you're dealing with just automatically doesn't like you? And that's because his father doesn't like you. He's tied to the spirit of this age. And you're tied to a holy spirit. And those two spirits are in conflict one with another. So Daniel could not have been comfortable with those that were antagonism, in antagonism toward him simply because they had a different father. They were related to a different spirit. And we need to recognize that in the world we shall have tribulation. But we can be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. And I really am concerned that there is an effort on the part of the people of God to become comfortable in an economy to which they do not belong. Well, if I'd have said it, this is what I'd have said. And you can strike it from the record. Lawyers tell me once it's said, you can't do it anyhow. You know, they just throw it out there and it's out there anyhow, so I'll go ahead and say it. But I made comment to the meeting at Grace uh, some several months back that I began to be concerned that we were getting respectable in Kerrville. And that worries me. There was a time when we used to be the church across the river. Well, maybe we created some of that for ourselves, too. I don't know. But uh, there's a sense in which when we uh, cease to make waves, then I begin to get concerned. Uh, we can settle down and become respectable in such a fashion so that we don't have any effect anymore, so that there's no demarcation line between what's of the world and what's of God. Oh, well, I said it, I'm glad. <laughs> Where do I leave you with this? Verse oh, 22. King, live forever. Verse 22. My God hath sent His angel and hath shut the lions' mouths that they, shall, that they have not hurt me. For as much as before Him innocence was found in me, and also before Thee, O King, have I done no hurt. And then was the King exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Now, I don't know if you have become familiar with some of the modern commentaries that are written on this experience, but some have suggested that the reason that Daniel survived this was because the lions were old. Now, this is what's been written about. The lions were old, and they had no teeth. And therefore, Daniel was able to survive this. Now, if they had read the next paragraph, they would recognize that that interpretation won't hold water. And the king commanded, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions had the mastery of them. That's one of those King James understatements. <laughs> and broke all their bones in pieces before they came to the bottom of the den. That does not sound like old and defenseless lines. <coughs> yes? The Amplified says there, and before ever they reached the bottom of the den, 
the lions had overpowered them and had broken their bones in pieces. Yeah, they'd sat there all night long watching that meal, and God wouldn't let them have any of it, mm -hmm. and so they were probably pretty antagonistic. I imagine. And then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Remember, this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now I get the impression that Darius learned a lot from that singular experience. It must be noted by it that it took the Spirit of God to give that revelation and understanding to him that this man in whom was the Spirit of the Holy Gods was serving the God that went much farther than just what some of the soothsayers could do, that is to say, work some miracles from time to time. All right, now, we're on the threshold of chapter 7. I'm not going to intrude on that tonight. We move from that section of the book that addresses a pagan bondage king to the period of the kings during which Daniel and his people are going to prosper. But it's going to take us back in chapter 7 to that silent time when Daniel was not interpreting dreams or visions for the king, but rather God is speaking to him by himself. And now in this period of redemption, we're going to begin to find out the revelations that were hidden in age past time. That's the figure that's promoted. So in chapter 7, and much of it we've already discussed when we looked at chapter 2, chapter 7 will be the unfolding of the end time, and we'll start then, and I'm going to try to chart some of this out for you. Anyone have any comments or questions? I'm going to stop there. Yes, ma'am. There have been four kings in this book named, mm -hmm. and one uh, was not redeemed. The others redeemed. Well, uh, Belshazzar, you know, Belshazzar is the only one that the Scripture does not suggest that he experienced redemption. So there's three and one, there's four. Do you make anything out of that? Well, four, of course, is that world number. And yes, and uh, three is a uh, is a divine number. I cannot uh, say that I would make anything out of that fact that there were just three of them that was pointed to Darius, and his understanding of the Most High God is emphasized here. Cyrus the Great we're not told about in Daniel, but we are told in Isaiah that he was called before he was ever born. God named the man before he ever came on the scene, and the Lord refers to him as his shepherd in Isaiah chapter 44. So uh, Cyrus was uniquely that one called to the Lord to bring that redemption to the people of Israel. Cyrus will be in the presence of the Lord justified in that day, as will Darius, as will Nebuchadnezzar, but Belshazzar, quite evidently not. But the fact that there are four kings, of course, is relative to the fact that the Lord is dealing with the world nations, and that four always shows up there. But as to the redemption of the three of them, I don't really have any comment on that. Anything else? <laughs> you all really do concern me when you don't have any questions. Maybe I'll bring some uh, controversial thing next week so we can have <laughs> some questions. Father, we so thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your faithfulness towards us, Lord. And in this period, we're grateful that 
we can be of good cheer because you've overcome the world. In Jesus' name, we submit ourselves to you as unto a faithful creator, knowing that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or even think, according to that power that works in us by Jesus Christ. In his name we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Bless you.